Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints, ladies and gentlemen, TGIF, welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And, you know, sometimes I, you know, I'm a little, sometimes, you guys know I'm a little strange sometimes, and I'm a little geeky, uh, and sometimes I have to get my little geek fix on. Um, I, I'm talking about um, I, I'm into the planets a little bit in a variety of ways. I'm into space a little bit in a variety of ways, not as much as some more than others, but the person that helps me kind of get my information and get it clear and, and to everybody's understanding is uh, Dr. Gal Reed. He's back with us, planetary scientist. Good morning. How are you, sir? Welcome back. Oh, no. Oh, is he not here? Oh, no. Ah, gosh, I was looking forward to that. I've got to find out what's going on with him, but we're, we're going to talk in a minute about that. Um, the reason I wanted to bring him up, there's a variety of things, and, and I know you guys probably say, oh, she's late to the game talking about the Artemis One uh, flight that's coming up, uh, but they postponed it. So, you know, I'm not necessarily late. I'm just, you know, it was kind of checking things out because I – live in Florida. I grew up in Florida. I actually did a few years stint as a little girl over on the east coast of Florida in Brevard County, where a lot of the flights um, go up. And so, you know, after watching some of these things and, and, you know, kind of looking at the variety of circumstances, you know, sometimes things just don't happen on schedule with these things. There's a lot that's involved in it and so um when you know I, I wasn't surprised when it didn't go up i know a lot of people spent a lot of money coming down here to take a look and they were highly invested in it um and, and i feel bad that uh you know they spent that kind of money i hope they enjoy themselves regardless because you know my state is a beautiful state um just gotta get past some of the crazies but we're good um but anyway Artemis 1 is back on track to try to go up again. It's scheduled for this coming Tuesday at 11.37 a.m. Eastern Time um, and from uh, Kennedy Space Center. Uh, they have a backup day for October 2nd. However, they are going to have um, a press conference, I think, this afternoon, just as the show goes off, about 12.30. So uh, they're going to... Um, give us an update in terms of whether or not the flight will go off. There's some other things happening, too. There's a, 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 I guess, a rocket or something going off next week that is supposed to 
actually hit an asteroid. And that, that's what, one of the things that, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff going on, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to um, uh, Professor Sarit about, as well as um, there was some yeah, information that came out recently. Oh, Dr. Sarit, are you there? Yes, I am. <laughs> hey, 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 good morning. Thank you. <laughs> for being with us, we're great. Glad to have you back. Because um, I'm just uh, sorry, you know, I'm I had talking. some issues connecting. Say what? I had some issues connecting. So I understand. Sorry, I do. I, I, yeah, I, I had I had a few issues myself uh, beforehand, but I'm glad you were able to to join us. So so like I was telling them, there's just kind of a, a few things that are going on right now, and like we didn't cover Artemis before, but. Like I told them, me, I, me having you know lived, been been in this area just about all my life, um, having even lived on the space coast for a little bit, you know everything doesn't necessarily go according to plan. So Artemis didn't go off, but it's scheduled to go right. off this coming Tuesday. And I was telling them, I guess there's some sort of update or press conference that's happening at 12:30 when we get off the air. But tell us a little bit about the significance of Artemis One and why why all of the interest it had a huge draw in terms of tourists wanting to see it go off that didn't happen but it's still it's a significant um event so talk to us about that right so um <clears throat> so artemis is just not just artemis one that's artemis is the you know umbrella name of an entire program that is meant to you know return presence or rather human presence um onto the moon so it's it's so it, it creates the same of you know atmosphere and vibe and i think that's what pulls a lot of people into it as you know the early gemini programs and then the apollo programs and then the uh, space shuttle programs it's this big program that has a lot of components with a very large uh you know uh foresight and vision that is aimed not at a, you know a single target, a single task, or a single um, or a single occasion, but rather uh, to sort of put you know put our boots forward, put our faces forward, uh, and 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 establish some sort of, of future hallmark. Um, so Artemis One is the first stage uh, of that program where um, we are launching a large new rocket, which is part of the reason why uh, the previous uh, two launches were scrubbed, uh, canceled, that is, um, uh, launching a large rocket, launching a myriad of, of uh, accompanying uh, experiments and, and uh, space robotic uh, vehicles to sort of get that, get that presence, the robotic presence for now, and several important measurements in what's called the cislunar space, that's the space around the moon, between Earth and the moon. Um, and obviously, I think people get excited every time a big new rocket is up to launch, is up for launch, um, uh, which I think that that kind of uh, sets sets the tone. Um, yeah, it's it's actually one of the more positive things when we talk about things that, um, you know, happen, things that I guess uh, we as man have been able to create and, and sustain and, and benefit from in so many different ways. It's one of the more positive things that there's not a whole lot of controversy about, you know, in terms of, you know, getting getting our, our scientists 
this mechanism for us to travel and explore and get information and see what's out there. So, oh, um, Gretchen, there's yeah. always controversy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said not as there much. There will always be controversy. <laughs> well, yeah, there's there's always going to be controversy because I'm going to ask you the next question. That's kind of that's kind of controversial, okay. and and this okay. is about this is about man on the moon, not just man going up there to explore, get you know data to get samples and all that kind of stuff. This is uh, my question is about the constant. Uh, uh, proposition about man living on the moon. And yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, how feasible is that really, number one? Number two, if we tamper with the moon by going up there and building and living and all that kind of stuff, does how does that affect the, uh, I guess you could say the makeup of the moon and how it affects us because, you know, in terms of the you know, gravitational pulls and other types of things. And that's why I have you on here because I'm not, as, I'm not the expert, you are. So mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about how feasible that is and, you know, the pros and cons, I guess you could say. Right. So your first question is a, let's call it a scientific or engineering kind of question. Your second question uh, it's more of a sci-fi kind of question, and I can answer both, <laughs> but I just want to make sure that we understand. So the question of feasibility um, ultimately is a question of how much, um, how much man, uh, person hour, and how much money and how much of our technology prowess we are willing to aim at it. It is feasible to get to the moon. We've done it. It is feasible to stay on the moon. We've done it as well. And it is feasible to stay for a prolonged amount of time on the moon, given that we solve the different uh, technological uh, um, challenges, given that we have the right engineering solutions for a a long stay, which means, you know, we need to generate fuel, we need to generate uh, uh, life support systems, uh, we need to be able to uh, have a maintenance uh, uh, chain of supply, right? It's the same thing as if we want to hoist a, an expensive platform to look at the earth or look at uh, uh, space. We want to have the ability to maintain it. So we don't want to send people to the moon, say you're going to stay there for several months or even a year, but there is no possible way to support you. So we need to uh, we need to be able to solve all these challenges. And I think with the technology we have today, we are, let's say, almost there, okay? Uh, it's not going to be easy living. It's not going to be um, fun in the sense that we all, you know, have our leisure time and, and live pretty easily right now um, in most places. Um, but it is feasible for well-trained people and the, and the right engineering support. Um, there's another question that hides in there, which is not only is it feasible, but is it worth it, right? And that's where maybe a bit of it, the controversy can come in, uh, not, in the, not from the sci-fi side, but from the realistic side. Is it worth it, right? Um, and I think the answer to that um, sort of begs us to have a little bit of grain of belief so we need to believe that, uh, you know, mankind or the human civilization's future 
is driven by technological progress. And the way to look at the future and our technological progress is to be able to sustain our presence, not just on Earth. Because, you know, let's be honest, we are doing some horrible things to the Earth. And mm-hmm. even if it's not us, the Earth is an evolving system which can change and can, you know, can, um, uh, I would say, not, not, not hurt us deliberately, but present significant challenges to, to humankind. So we want to be able to look out and we want to be able to have another way to spread and to be able to expand our resources. So that's, that's the question of is it feasible and is it worth it? Now, the second part. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad you said that because the thing that I think some people are thinking that we're going to go up to the moon and we're going to scatter seeds and we're going to make it rain so that we can scatter other seeds and make flora and fauna grow so that we can, you know, have, have you know, it's, it's going to, I don't know what people are expecting when they leave here and go to the moon because, first of all, we can't breathe in that atmosphere. So there you, is no atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. So you, you can't breathe. There's no water, right? Or mm-hmm. is there? <laughs> well, you know. there, there, could, there, there are probably um, um, patches, and maybe even large patches of mm-hmm. uh, water, frozen water, in what's called permanently shadowed um, regions of the moon or even uh, in some places just under the uh, surface, the regular surface. But mm-hmm. you can think of it more as establishing a, a continuous presence in Antarctica. We have that. We have that for several years now, right? Okay. Um, but it's an operational base. It's, by any means, it's not a resort or a leisure destination. You go there okay. to do work. You live in confined conditions. Um, um, you're not terraforming Antarctica. Rather, you are surviving in your camp, uh, uh, under, in your camp facilities, in order to do the work that you that you're sent there for. You're going there for, and I think that's mm-hmm. a better analogy. Human presence on the moon. We're not going to terraform the moon. Um, I'm sorry to any of your listeners, but that's impossible. <laughs> No, but I'm glad you said that because I, I believe that there are some people out there that, thinks, that think that that's what's going to happen. We're going to go to the moon and we're going to, at least part of it, we're going to terraform because um, they've watched all these, these sci-fi shows. Um, <laughs> so, so, but even, yeah, but even in these sci-fi shows, but even in these sci-fi shows, uh, rather the more realistic sci-fi shows, if, if I can call yeah. them that, um, yeah. you know, again, I'm sorry to any of your listeners, but we are not gods. We are not able to change the basic physical uh, laws of the universe. Mm-hmm. The moon has no atmosphere. We're not going to generate a, a, a large-scale atmosphere on the moon. We may be able mm-hmm. to uh, build terrariums, you know, self-contained, sealed environments where we will mm-hmm. be able to grow uh, something, you know, hydrophonic uh, uh, plants, um, be able to grow some food, be able to generate maybe even a self-sustaining um, a cycle of oxygen and, 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 and uh, carbon reduction, carbon dioxide reduction. Mm-hmm. We may be able to do that in a cage, in a closed system that we built. Terraforming, 
the, the, the meaning of terraforming is you take that planetary object, that planetary environment, and you turn it into Earth-like conditions. That is mm-hmm. impossible to do on the moon. Okay. And it's impossible. All right. So, so that's why I raise the analogy of something like the Antarctica base, which is a, mm-hmm. a much better way to think about it. Because we have never been able and we will not be able to terraform Antarctica. It doesn't have the right conditions. Antarctica will never be, you know, South Beach or <laughs> Orlando or Gainesville. It will never be that. Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm glad you're saying that because, you know, I mean, I, I'm the one that's saying, okay, why don't we just take care of what we got here, the planet here, <laughs> instead of trying to waste all of this time about trying to go somewhere else. It was not designed for us. It, this is designed for us, and we just have to do the proper care and maintenance for what we have already, you know. But, well, in one sense, Gretchen, but in the other sense, um, I, don't, I don't think the Earth was designed for us. We evolved to fit the Earth. Ah, and, okay. Um, that's, I mean, we as, you know, the same thing as the, the, the large, beautiful, uh, starting to, to uh, shed its leaves uh, tree that I have in front of me. We, we both evolved to fit the conditions on Earth. Um, sadly for the tree, the tree does not have a technological component. So whatever uh, stresses of nature uh, is presented to it, the tree will respond and evolve. Uh, one of the uh, major differences that humankind has is technological evolution. We're able to mm-hmm. actually change the constraints and the forces that act on us from the environment by by actively applying technological instruments and in that sense we can we can definitely create um areas of living off-world uh be Mm -hmm. it in a uh, closed can that revolves around the earth the international space station for example and astronauts have been staying there for for long very long periods of time um we will be able to maintain, uh, uh, you know, an outpost, a base, maybe even a terrarium kind of uh, uh, a colony on the moon, uh, perhaps even on Mars uh, when we solve the different pickups of how to get there uh, safely. Um, we will be able to do that. And it is worth it because we will be able to expand our resources. We will be able to ensure that we have a presence that's not, you know, uh, that's not limited to one place and one place only. And if I dare to go into um, sci-fi realms and make a little nice segue to the other part, which I would like to talk about, the Earth is in danger. Mm -hmm. The Earth is in constant danger. If it's not climate change or, you know, uh, nuclear threats by different nations and other nations, there are rocks that come from the sky, some of them small, so they don't cause damage, some of them large, and they can cause a great deal of damage. And honestly, there's, there's little we can do about it right now, which is for you as a nice segue to the dark mission. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, speaking of, of uh, the, the Earth being in danger and stuff like that, I wanted to talk about there's some, there is uh, something, a uh, rocket or something going off next week that's supposed to crash into yes. a meteor, right? Uh, yes. So it's called a DART mission, D-A-R-T, double asteroid okay. redirect mission. 
and it's a uh, it's a uh, a NASA mission. It was originally it was a NASA and ESA mission, so American and European together. Uh, but uh, f from those early stages, it kind of uh, separated into two different missions. Uh, the mm -hmm. European mission called HERA will be launched later to come and visit the same asteroid. But the DART mission is, um, you know, the tagline is very simple. We're, we launched a, a space vehicle that will that is on its way right now to visit an asteroid called Didymos. It's a binary system composed of one large asteroid called Didymos and a smaller companion, uh, a moon asteroid called Dimorphos. It will get there, and once it gets there, it's going to crash head-on into the smaller asteroid, Dimorphos. Okay. Now, you know, that, now, that begs a lot size? of questions. What's the size, I want to say, what's the size of, of the small asteroid, and what's the size, my understanding is the size of the, I guess you could say dart that was sending is the size of a car, is that correct? Roughly, roughly a sedan, okay. uh, with, you know, with large, uh, um, uh, with large solar panels and some intrusions, uh, but yeah, basically. Okay, all right. And so, uh, so when why uh, why is it that we are trying to change the trajectory of this particular asteroid? Right. So there are we know that there are asteroids that are hitting Earth. We know that there are very small ones called uh, uh, meteorites that fall onto the Earth. Uh, some uh, some during meteor showers you see these large flashes in the sky. These are called bolides. So these are uh, meteors that go through the atmosphere, get heated up very quickly, uh, uh, their pressure and temperature inside rise, and they blow up, but they don't cause any damage. There are larger impacts that cause more damage, uh, and we know that once in a you know once in a millennia of blue moons, there are very large asteroids that hit the Earth and they cause catastrophic events. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are responsible for uh, uh, for large extinction events, and there mm -hmm. will be one another one coming. We don't know exactly when because it's it's a statistical argument when uh, uh, the larger asteroids come and hit us. Um, but what's for sure is that again, as I was mentioning, unlike the tree that's in front of me that evolved on Earth, we evolved on Earth, but also have a technology evolution component. And that's what we're, we want to use in order to mitigate these dangers that we face, right? Uh, we want to be able to stop these or at least uh, cause, uh, or at least help them to cause less damage. Uh, and when a large asteroid comes at us, and a large asteroid could be, you know, a kilometer or even a few hundred meters in size, uh, that's a mm -hmm. very large a, a very large catastrophic event that could happen. It, it can wipe out several cities. It can cause just huge tsunami waves. It can raise a lot of dust into the atmosphere and actually cause a, uh, a, a you know, year, several year long change in the weather, uh, which obviously causes uh, issues with health, issues with food, and et cetera. So what do we do about it? One idea is if we find that asteroid is coming right at us early enough, we can send something to just very, very, uh, uh, in, in a very, very small way, just nudge it a bit off course. And if we do it early enough and it's the right nudge, that asteroid will just pass by us. 
So mm-hmm. we're not really trying to blow up that asteroid or stop it in its course. We're doing something more gentle, something more of a, uh, of, you know, of the, of the uh, uh, kind of an Eastern martial arts thing. Just want to nudge it a bit and have it pass just by us. That's enough, as long as it doesn't crash into us. Okay. And so DART is the first and only actual experiments we are conducting to see what happens when we nudge an asteroid. We don't know what happens when we nudge an asteroid. We have lab measurements on Earth on different materials. It's not the right environment. We have computer simulations, but computer simulations need input from real measurements in life, and we've, ne- we've never had that. We need to hit a big thing that is up there in space and see what happens. And so we're sending a spacecraft, and we know what it's made of. We know what its shape. We know where it's going to hit. We know how it's going to hit and how fast it's going to hit. And we're going to measure the slight change in the um, orbital period and the time it takes the small asteroid to uh, orbit the large asteroid. That's what we're doing. We're just nudging it a bit. Mm -hmm. We're transferring the momentum of the incoming robotic spacecraft into that smaller asteroid and see how much of its velocity in its orbit is it going to change. And that's going to tell us what is that nudge that little nudge that we can impart on an asteroid. Okay. So how sure are we that this is not going to have some sort of adverse uh, reaction and and cause maybe a a bigger concern for us here on Earth? This impact itself? The impact, mm-hmm. or the, the the if you nudge it and or or try to nudge it and it doesn't necessarily go where you think it's supposed to go. Right. So um, I would say, um, you know, I you know me, I'm always cautious, but I would say that we're 100 percent sure there's no adverse effect because okay. what we're doing is we're not trying to change the trajectory of the asteroid system. Right. Remember, it's a larger mm-hmm. asteroid called Didymos, which is um, it's about uh, 780 or 800 meters in size. Okay. And that system with an asteroid and a moon around it is in a certain trajectory. We're not changing that trajectory at all. We are hitting okay. the small asteroid, which right. is bound. It orbits the large asteroid. It's bound to that large asteroid. And the impact that we are, uh, the, uh, the, the momentum that we are imparting on that asteroid is not large enough to overcome the force that hangs uh, that small asteroid in orbit around the larger asteroid. So we're not going to what's called disrupt the binary system. We're not going to separate these two asteroids into two objects that have separate trajectories. They will still be on the same trajectory. It's a near-Earth asteroid, a part of the okay. Apollo group of near-Earth asteroids, and it will remain that, and it will not change its orbit around the sun. We're going to see if okay. we can change ever so slightly the orbit of the small asteroid around the larger one. Okay. All right. Good to know. Um, that well, <laughs> I've got. To, I'm going to go ahead and take an early break because I got other questions. And well, actually, early and late because I was supposed to take one break, getting ready to take another. So we're here with planetary scientist Dr. Galsa Reed, uh, talking about we're talking about Artemis, we're talking about. Uh, 
whether or not you should go try to live on the moon, and some other things And when we come back. If you have questions, the number is 516-387-1944. That's 516-387-1944. G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We are here with Dr. Galsa Reed. He is a planetary scientist. Um, he's joined us before. Glad to have him back. And if you have questions, the number is 516-387-1944. Um, so I wanted to find out about something that came out, I guess, this week or well, it was on the 15th, I think, about Saturn, since we're talking about things colliding into one another. Uh, and I think I may have sent you one of the articles. Uh, so I, at first I thought it was something that just happened, but it, what they're looking at, I guess, is why Saturn is, I guess, the way it is, why it's tilted and all the type of stuff. So can you talk about uh, what they've discovered about Saturn and its rings? Yeah. So we'll, we'll just start off with, um, the fact that all the planets in our solar system are tilted in the sense that their rotation axis is not 90 degrees to the um, to what's called the ecliptic plane, the plane uh, at which they orbit the sun. Every planet is tilted. For example, the Earth is tilted in, by 23.5 degrees, which is the reason we have seasons uh, in, the, um, uh, in the northern and southern hemisphere. Uh, every planet is tilted a bit. Uh, some tilted just slightly, like Jupiter, only a few degrees. Some are actually just flipped on their side um, uh, uh, altogether, like, like Neptune. And the intriguing question that, that physicists, that astrophysicists have is why, right? Why do they do that? If you just calculate how uh, rotating uh, globs of matter uh, come together, creep together, in this circular motion about a central star like the sun, um, they, don't, they don't really form tilted. They should basically rotate around uh, themselves, what's called their spin, uh, and that should be uh, directed uh, 90 degrees to the orbit at which they rotate around the sun. So why are planets tilted? It's a general question. Why are they tilted? Mm-hmm. And so there were several ideas throughout the years. Um, and one of the, uh, I would say, currently main ideas about that is that very early on during uh, the solar system's formation, 
there was a period that's called a giant impact period where a large, uh, 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 I would say, cores of planets or, or planets not yet completely formed uh, were on orbits that sometime intersected each other and they would hit each other. Uh, one leading theory is the formation of Earth's moon, which was generated by a large, uh, uh, something like Mars or even a few, almost a Venus-sized object that smashed into the Earth, caused uh, the Earth to completely lose any atmosphere, caused a widespread melting of heavy materials like, like iron. Some of it splashed out, and some of these splash-outs and, and mixed material uh, formed what we know as our moon, which kind of slowly cooled down and settled in its orbit uh, as the Earth cooled down and settled in its orbit and slowed its spin down to the comfortable 24 hours we have today. Although, as a side note, I would prefer there to have like 26 hours a day. It'd be very helpful, <laughs> an extra two hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not up to me. Um, so, but that idea, uh, there are as there's some evidence that Mars had a large giant impact very early on. Uh, it's called the hemispherical dichotomy. Uh, we measure the gravitational profile of Mars in, the, in its southern hemisphere and, and uh, northern hemisphere, and we see that under the surface, it is not completely homogeneous. So something changed the distribution of mass inside Mars, and that something was large, so that could be a very large impact. Um, so these ideas are around there. So uh, Saturn is a giant planet almost as large as Jupiter, right? Jupiter mm. is almost not tilted at all. So the question is, how do you get such a large planet to tilt on its side? And so the idea in that, uh, in what you sent me, the, the, the latest idea that came out now, involves a large impact, but not directly onto Saturn, which is an interesting part. It involves a large impact uh, between two large ancient moons of Saturn. One of them uh, uh, probably came in to smash into the other and caused a spreading of a, ma a, a more massive ring around Saturn, so a ring that composes of more material. And the interesting part is when you look at the dynamics at how things rotate and respond to each other's motion, when you look at that motion, at, at, at that interaction between a ring, a orbiting planet around a star and its spin of that planet itself, you start getting these resonances. So these periods of rotation sometimes overlap and they cause a transition of momentum, of spin momentum. So all of these motions together sometimes overlap and cause, uh, and cause a change in the dynamics of each component. And what, these, uh, uh, what this group calculated is if you have a very early on large uh, uh, moon of Saturn being completely obliterated, you cause a ring around it, and that ring has enough time to interact with Saturn's own rotation and cause, it doesn't change, necessarily change its spin period at the time it takes it to revolve around itself, but it does change where that spin is pointing, basically changing that uh, rotation axis to tilt to the point where these resonances are, uh, are, are quieted down. So they, they don't interact anymore and they don't 
uh, and they don't dissipate that energy, that momentum around the system. It's a very sophisticated idea. It's not the only idea out there. Um, um, and, and there's, you know, there's always these questions of, so what happened to these remnants of that old moon? Uh, why didn't it happen to Jupiter? Uh, what's going on with Uranus and Neptune, obviously? And it, these are all questions that can be answered within these larger model uh, calculations. But that's, that's the gist of this idea. Okay. All right. I was, because it seemed like it was just, uh, I guess something that uh, was a recent development. There were a lot of published, you know, art stories published about it, and so that's why I wanted to ask you about what was going on with with Saturn and stuff. But you gave me some more insight in terms of our own planet, so that's that's good. I I, I appreciate that. Um, I I want to ask. I'm going to go off a little bit here on a tangent. I want to ask you about. The amount of space travel that we're doing and the amount of, I guess, space debris or debris that uh, we and other countries tend to leave up there. And I wanted to ask you, are we having any type of negative impact? on our atmosphere, travel back and forth, and, uh, and what we tend to leave, whether it's deliberate or not deliberate, what we t tend to leave up in space? Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, um, and, and again, it has two, two parts that are kind of distinct. One is the, the influence on our atmosphere. And the influence on our atmosphere is um, actually you know, right now, still, um, aviation uh, contributes a whole lot more uh, pollution into the atmosphere than, than um, off-world launches. Now, mind you, uh, once we start, if and when we start launching at such a high cadence that it maybe competes with aviation, then we will have a problem. Um, but right now, it's still not, not the same, and it's, and it's a different kind of fuel. So it's not um, um, it's not carbon-based fuel. It's hydrogen-based, uh, hydrogen helium-based fuel. So it's not the same kind of contribution to the um, um, aerosols and, and and pollution in the atmosphere. However, you touched on a very important point, which is space debris. Uh, we are very quickly filling up the space around Earth, just outside of our atmosphere, uh, in, in low Earth orbit. Uh, Etc. We're filling it up with debris, uh, old satellites that are defunct, parts of satellites that are defunct, uh, parts of uh, uh, parts of stages of rocket launches that are left in orbit, and it's it's beginning to be a serious problem. It's beginning to get recognized in the last couple of years as a very serious problem that we need to uh, that we need to actively address. Um, and the reason for that is very simple. Um, just think that you are now, uh, let's say, Gretchen has opened an aerospace company and you've won a few contracts uh, and you're going to launch a few satellites for people. You know, your livelihood depends on this. Other people's livelihood depends on this. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether um, the information, the data from your satellites is dependent on this. It's important, right? You launch right. and, within a and within a matter of a few weeks or maybe a few months of putting that satellite in orbit, it gets hit by something. 
then it's dead. You don't have that anymore. Um, mm. So it causes damage. But the even more frightening thing is that when we look at that space around Earth, your satellite that has just been destroyed is causing a cascade of increasing danger because every little nut and bolt of your destroyed satellite becomes a new kind of bullet, a new debris out there that's endangering uh, other people's uh, assets in space. So unlike a crash on Earth, right, when we crash a car or even, even, even you know, God forbid, large train crashes, mm-hmm. all of that damage is localized to the site of the accident. Right. A crash in space generates a cascade of danger that increases the uh, uh, probability of getting hit to any other thing in that, in that, in that uh, uh, region around Earth. And that's why we have to be, start thinking about it more carefully, uh, where we fly our satellites, how we regulate them, uh, and different ideas about removing space debris uh, safely. Um, but you know, I, I was going to ask: was Do we need to have maybe some cleanup missions? I don't hear about those. I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't we start doing some of those? Uh, well, we are starting. We are starting actually. There are several companies, private companies, and that's their mission. They're they're developing um, uh, either methods or idea or even actual uh, hardware uh, platforms that deal with the uh, either capturing. Uh, or, or removing by, by different uh, uh, methods. Um, you know, you could also, uh, you don't have to capture a debris. You can also change its, uh, its uh, orbit quicker and give it a nudge so it spirals even quicker into the atmosphere and burns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are ideas about that. There are companies, there are, you know, um, um, uh, for-profit companies that are working on these ideas right now. Um, now, I, I, something, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Something you mentioned, though, about nudging it where it burns out, isn't that going to be difficult, though, if we make these capsules, if we make these rockets and components so that they withstand a certain amount of heat so that they don't burn out? Isn't it going to be hard to to make these components that are left up there disintegrate? No, 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 um, because um, we make these materials, we make these vehicles uh, resistant to heat, but only in specific ways that we launch them. Um, okay. If you, remember, if you remember the Columbia Space Shuttle, for example? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason it, it blew up all over Texas, basically, was that a ceramic... Um, um, insulating tile got loose and caused, again, a cascade of, of, um, of mechanical failures. But what mm-hmm. happened is because the space shuttle lands more or less like a plane, it spends more time flying through the atmosphere at a high speed. So if you fly through the atmosphere, the longer you fly at a higher velocity, the more uh, friction you experience, then that friction generates uh, heat. Mm-hmm. And that heat raises internal temperatures and pressures, and eventually there's a catastrophic fail of material because the pressure and temperature are high. And so we launch our rockets 
in a designed way so that they don't spend too much time in the atmosphere. But right. If, uh, small parts start spiraling through, spiraling down, and then through the atmosphere, they would spend a prolonged amount of time getting, getting sheared and friction by the atmosphere. So that raises their temperature, and eventually they would burn out. Okay. All right. So we're going to take another quick break. Um, I'm going to let you come back and finish what you were saying. And then I, I have some questions about our own planet Earth. So um, we're here with planetary scientist Dr. Galsall Reed. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. Does it appear the long arm of the law is working against you instead of for you? Whom do you call when the boys in blue are pursuing you? When the wrong person behind bars may end up being you? With over 40 years combined legal expertise, Anderson and Welch bring to bear a smart, sound, sensible defense of those caught in what may be the unrelenting grip of the legal system. Turn to Anderson and Welch first to get ahead of trouble, not fall into it, by calling 561-832-3386. That's 561-832-3386. That's Anderson and Welch Law Firm online at andersonandwelch.com. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. Um, just wanted to mention that uh, there is a tropical storm that is brewing and um, is expected to become a hurricane uh, named Hermine, I believe it is, and um, might be headed um, toward the Sunshine State. So uh, just please keep a watch and be prepared. Get prepared if you already, you know, the basics. Um, and, you know, have a game plan just in case. Don't wait till the last minute, please. So anyway, we are back here with Dr. Galsa Reed, planetary scientist. And if you have questions, the number is 516-387-1944. I've interrupted you so much. I know you probably have lost track of where you were. But if there's something that I have not addressed that we need to address before I go to my next question, please do, because uh, I know there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Uh, so just one quick plug. Uh, we were talking about the dark mission and it impacting an asteroid called uh, Deimorphos in the Didymos asteroid system. This is happening three days from now, on the 26th. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Around, 26 to uh, around afternoon, 4 or 5 uh, Eastern mm-hmm. Standard Time, that is going to okay. happen. And I'm sure that they're going to uh, have some sort of live NASA presentation. I myself am going to be at the... John Hopkins campus, where the headquarter of that mission is. Um, wow, well, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I guess it's, it's, I hope, live streaming where it can be seen? I hope so. I know that the camera is going to um, send back pictures uh, every few minutes as it comes in, and then every few seconds it's going, it's going to take, the, take pictures. And then every couple of fractions of a second as it impacts uh, and dies, obviously, I'm not, I don't know what would be the rate of release of these, of these images or videos. I have no idea. Okay. All right. 
So um, I wanted to, like I said, I, I kind of, we, we talk about all the other uh, planets and things that are going on in the moon and, and everywhere else. Let's talk about what's going on here uh, because there's a lot going on. We kind of just blow it off. We ignore it. Um, you know, the, the, we, talk, we were talking about controversial subjects, climate change. Um, they they uh-huh. changed it from what it used to be called, which is global warming. Now we're talking about climate change, which is probably more accurate, I guess, you, I, in yeah. my opinion. Um, we are experiencing there's different things happening with our different bodies of water. We're going from um, melt of, you know, the polar ice caps and different types of things to um, – I guess I would say evaporation of water in different areas. I mean, I look at uh, big bodies of water, lakes that used to be in certain places that have pretty much dried up and you've got grass and trees growing in it. But then you talk about the possibility of an increase in the sea level. So help me out here. What is going on? Right. So um, the original name was global warming, and it's not wrong because the uh, average temperature of the world, around the world, is increasing. And if you look at different uh, uh, measurements and matrices, it is increasing at a higher... So just to be clear, yes, the temperature, the average temperature on the Earth has been rising and then falling, undulating throughout its history. What we see Mm -hmm. in the last 100 years is the rate of warming is accelerating. So it's quicker than it's ever been before. So even if you look at the natural cycle of warming and cooling of the Earth as a whole system, there's another component there that it's very hard to, um, very hard to neglect our, contribu- to our contribution to that rising rate of heating. That's, that's what worries, uh, well, it should worry everyone, but that's what worries scientists around the world. It's the rate mm-hmm. at which the global average temperature is rising. But it is also true that in order to be less controversial in order to be more accurate to what people experience day to day, it is climate change. The climate is changing, and we see it and we feel it. People in California feel it. Uh, people in Florida feel it, right? You were just mentioning a tropical storm that's going maybe develop into a hurricane. There's an expected now, now happening, but also expected a, large, a larger um, a potential number of hurricanes every hurricane season and potentially mm-hmm. more higher, um, uh, uh, more, more destructive level hurricanes per season. That's climate change that we feel right now. Um, you've mentioned the shrinkage of lakes where temperatures rise enough so that the evaporation rate, right, the rate at which water becomes vapor, go up to the clouds, mm-hmm. is overcoming the rate at which these lakes used to be uh, um, uh, replenished, and again, mm-hmm. that's climate change. Overall, in that in that cycle of the lakes, there is uh, there is less water, liquid water, going into that body of water. That's a change of that climate cycle from what it was before. The rise of sea levels is again the same thing. We are sea levels have been uh, you know rising and then falling, and there's 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 these cycles, there's these natural climate cycles throughout Earth's history. But what we're seeing now, because of this average global temperature uh, rising and rising quicker than before. And because uh, that affects areas that had, you know, uh, everlasting 
uh, uh, ice patches like uh, uh, polar caps uh, and, and, and different areas in our, uh, closer to the North Pole and the Northern Hemisphere. This is an increase in the um, amount of water going into what is eventually, we have to remember, eventually the Earth is a closed system, right? Mm -hmm. The waters we have in the oceans are the waters on Earth. So if you mm -hmm. introduce more water into that bath by, you know, by melting polar caps, you are raising mm -hmm. that level. Try it in your bath. Fill out your bath mm -hmm. almost all the way to the top and then take a bucket of water and spill it in. You will have mm -hmm. an overflow. <laughs> and so now also that additional water is impacting the salinization. Is that correct? Of, of yes. the ocean water? Yeah. And so what is exactly. that doing? So it changes the um, uh, so, so water. So the waters in the ocean are affected by different uh, uh, different factors, but mostly it's um, what is the temperature gradient of the water and how much salt uh, is there in the different parts of the ocean. And and um, the reason that the salinity, the, then the how much salt you have in the water is changing is again we're simply adding more water and changing these currents in the ocean. So we are changing how uh, 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 salts are mixed up in the ocean. And the danger there is that salt acts as a component in that temperature uh, uh, cycle where material gets material get vaporized into the cloud and then fall back again into the ocean where the temperatures mm -hmm. uh, in the top levels of the water remain somewhat constant to a certain degree in certain seasons. So once we change these components, we start changing the global climate. The oceans on the Earth basically control most of our climate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So <laughs> how do we, well, you know, like, like we said, we, 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 man, has had a great impact on some of this that's going on. Some of this is yeah. just cyclical. So how do we, I guess, change or, you know, whatever we've impacted, is there any way to reverse what we've impacted or is there a way to go forward and at least, you know, make whatever the negative impact is uh, a little less? Yeah, um, again, a great question. And um, because I think we have like five or six minutes, I want to try and be optimistic. <laughs> Although I'm not okay. necessarily optimistic about this. We're going to try. Yeah, we're going into the weekend. <laughs> There's a storm yeah, coming. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We don't want to get people all riled up. <laughs> um, <Okay. but> <laughs> again, uh, and again, because uh, we're, we're, we're nearing the end of this hour, uh, our hour, um, we can we can sort of close yeah. the argument again and say the way we can deal with it is technology. We need to find technological solutions that will help us mitigate uh, some of these issues. Um, uh, there there are all kinds of ideas and all kinds of methods. Um, you know, there's uh, areas in the world that have what's called permafrost, right? So that's it's again it's it's a it's a layer under the ground that is. Uh, mm -hmm. eternally frozen. Um, mm -hmm. And once, once the temperature ra rises a bit, this uh, permafrost, this eternally frozen ground, starts melting. The problem there is once the ice crystals melt, 
and turn into liquid, they release whatever they captured within that crystal. And what's captured there is mostly a lot of methane. And so mm. all of a sudden you introduce a lot of methane into the atmosphere and you change mm. the makeup of the atmosphere. So mm. we can think about ways of capturing methane in, 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 reducing, in, in uh, areas of reduced permafrost. Actively, actively uh, uh, looking at this. I know that there are several companies around the world that are looking at uh, global monitoring of, uh, of uh, uh, methane and, and carbon dioxide from space in order for us to know where these increases in methane and carbon dioxide come from. Some of it is dedicated to industries to look at leakages and spills, but some of it can be also be used in order to monitor the rate at which uh, methane is released into the atmosphere. Methane and carbon dioxide are released into the atmosphere uh, by uh, uh, areas that suffer climate change. That's some of what we can do. Uh, places that see uh, prolonged uh, drought, like California, um, can consider different methods of, uh, you know, uh, uh, water usage, uh, you know, uh, transferring into gray water irrigation, um, uh, you know, partial purification of water for different uses. We don't have to take, uh, you know, what's called like brown water or dirty water and purify it to 100% drinking level if we want to use some of it for other um, uses. So gray water, which is partially purified water, can be used for irrigation. Um, in general, I want to say this, um, despite the fact that it has been driven to us for a while, that even, you know, all you need to do is you, need, you can start um, recycling. And if every person recycles, it'll help. Honestly, and if you look at the numbers, um, no. We need, we need action that is large scale and it's driven by the large players in the field, which are uh, government, uh, large industries, uh, large corporations. Those are the players that are leading, and right now they're not. Now, I know you said we got a couple of minutes. I'm going to have to have you yeah, back on soon because there's other questions I have. No, no, you're good. Yeah. But my question is, because you mentioned different other players, uh, government, and my thing is what about regulation in terms of development? Uh, yes. Yeah, you know, I'm getting on my high horse again. Development in terms of, and I'm a realtor, so I, I like people to buy houses, but when they build these subdivisions, they raise the ground. They don't leave a lot of the uh, flora and fauna that's indigenous to the area. And then people wonder why it gets hotter. But if you don't have that greenery to filter some of this, then you have issues, right? Exactly. No, you're, 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 hitting, you're hitting a very specific nail on its head. Exactly. Uh, development needs to be more regulated. I would say not necessarily the way we, we think about regulation, right? Some people think about regulation as, you know, evil Uncle Sam coming to wag his finger and take, and take your wallet or something. Uh, but regulation in the sense that uh, it will require developers to mm -hmm. do a more serious examination of, uh, of natural or climate effect of what they are going to do. For example... Uh, oh, right that, now, we're, <laughs> we're going to have to say that. That's okay. okay. I'm going to have to ask you to come back when you have time. Think, and I started something I shouldn't have, but I did want to talk about okay. it. Thank you so much for taking the time. We no appreciate worries. you coming back.
Have a blessed weekend. Sure. You too, Gretchen. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening. This has been G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Be well, be safe, be blessed. Prepare, and please remember that all real power comes from God. Take care. <laughs>